Some of you might have uh, seen that series. This is going to betray my lowbrow humor, but here it goes. Series of videos online where this, this guy dresses up in a pretty convincing costume and then tries to scare the living daylights out of random passerbys. He just hides in car garages and dark places and jumps out. Now, it's a little cruel, but it's also really interesting to watch how people respond. I mean, some just instantly crumple into a little ball. Others drop their pizza, run for the hills. One guy, this was sad, literally pushes his girlfriend in front of him so he can escape. I think only one person actually just stopped and smiled. He was the only guy who kind of could figure out what was going on. It was, whether the videographer intended it or not, a fascinating study in fight or flight response. What do you do in response to danger? In our psalm today, we're going to listen in on a conversation between fight and flight, or maybe more accurately, between faith and flight. The faith response acknowledges, yes, things are bad. Things may get much worse. But that isn't the whole picture. There's more going on. The Lord is on his throne, and that makes him a secure refuge for those who trust in him. The flight response is basically unbelief in a nutshell. It says, this situation is so impossibly bad that the only reasonable response is to run away, to get out of there. So those are our two main headings, the flight response, the response of unbelief, and the fight response, or the response of faith. Then we'll close with one main, hopefully practical application for all of us. So the the flight response, or the response of unbelief, we see this position laid out for us in verses one to three. And I really want us to feel the weight of this argument, because if you're honest, I'm sure you've made similar arguments over the past few months. I know I have. We always need to address the weeds of unbelief with Scripture, because if we don't, they'll grow and choke out faith and obedience. So verses 1 to 3, flee like, here's the the response of, of flight, of unbelief. Flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They've fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Resignation, right? What can we do? Now, this may have been a real conversation David actually had with someone or an imaginary conversation he's considering rhetorically. Whatever the case, we all recognize this response to crisis. And as we've said, it's called unbelief. And what unbelief does is it assesses a situation on a purely physical cost analysis. That army looks big. Those people look powerful. He's too smart. We're so weak. We're outnumbered. Unbelief 
can't see past those things. What circumstances is our real or rhetorical opponent responding to? Well, we don't know specifically. The fact is that David's whole life was pretty terrifying. Someone was always trying to kill him. If it's not the old king, then it's the Philistines. If it's not his advisors, then it's his own son. David spends most of his life under threat of death. Whatever it was specifically, the point is that David and those Israelites with him who loved the Lord were staring down the barrel of what seemed like extinction. Things had become very bad. The righteous and righteousness itself was under assault by this group that verse two calls the wicked. Who were the wicked? Well, we learn in in verse five, the wicked are further defined as those who love violence. Who love violence. They also resent the people and principles that prevent them from doing all the violence they would like to do. If you're trying to clear a path through the forest, what do you have to do? You get a machete and you start hacking at the branches because those branches are impeding you. They are preventing you from getting to where you want to go. In this case, God's righteous law and God's righteous people are the branches. And idolatry and immorality and lawlessness are where the wicked want to go. That is what sin is. That is what sin does. It wants total power and dominance and total freedom to exercise all the evil that is in its heart. It hates to be hemmed in. It wants free reign to do what it wants to do. So the wicked here have motive, but we see that they're also well-equipped. See, they've got bows and arrows, bow and arrows here. They know how to use them. They're aiming carefully for the heart, we read in verse two. To shoot in the dark at the upright and heart. Their intent is to kill, to destroy, to cut off. We see that they're also stealthy. They're strategic. They don't come out and confront righteousness. We see that they shoot at them from the dark. So they're cowards, but they're well-armed cowards. Not only are the wicked trained in the art of destruction, practiced at it, but they're passionate about it. Their bowstrings are bent. They're actually excited. They anticipate the prospect of the destruction of the righteous. And this really is the heart of wickedness. Wickedness doesn't build, it doesn't nurture, it doesn't construct. All it can do is invent new ways to destroy. That's why secularism, literally a Godism, is such a terrible principle. Because when you try to get rid of God, who is the giver of all life, all you're left with is death. And good luck building anything on death. 
And I've mentioned before, it's no accident that we live in a death-enthused age. Let's kill the young. Let's kill the old and the infirm. Let's make safe, sanitized spaces for people to kill themselves. Let's bring on lockdowns that kill livelihoods and families and communities. We also see in verse 3 that these individuals aren't just interested in burning down the building. They're out to completely dismantle the foundations. The wicked don't want one stone of righteousness to remain intact if they can prevent it. They don't want anyone building. Remember Jezebel's hell-bent mission to get rid of all reminders of Yahweh in the land. She wasn't content to just outlaw worship. She wanted to kill all the prophets. Total extermination. Now, if you're looking to buy a house, the first thing you're going to want to do is look at the foundation. If there's giant cracks with squirrels nesting in them, you take a hard pass on that house. Because if the foundation's in jeopardy, the house isn't worth your investment. And that's the argument of unbelief. That's verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What, you can, what are you going to do if the foundations are a write-off? We see in our own day the destruction of foundations. The foundation that marriage is, is between a man and a woman. That boys are boys and girls are girls. That human life from conception to death is sacred. People should have the right to freely worship according to conscience and conviction. These foundations undergird the life and liberty we enjoy as Canadian citizens and free human beings. And now they're all in the crosshairs. Why? Well, not only because light prevents darkness from going to all the places it wants to go, but also because light condemns darkness. Light is superior to darkness, and darkness resents being exposed as inferior. Why did Cain murder his brother Abel? Because his brother's deeds were righteous, and his were evil, and he felt condemned. That's what we see at the crucifixion. Jesus was the reminder par excellence of just how wicked wickedness is. Just like when you have a pure white, all lesser whites seem more dirty. If you want those dirty whites to seem more white, you get rid of that pure white, right? You get rid of the standard. And that's exactly what the crowds demanded. They killed Jesus because he was a foil to their hypocrisy. That's what they did to his prophets. And that's what they will continue to do to the righteous until Christ returns. It's the same thing in David's day. It's the same thing today. Don't make the mistake of thinking that the world is on the side of the righteous. That system that is fundamentally anti-God, wants to get rid of God, wants to dethrone him. No, the presence of righteousness will always be a constant reminder to the wicked of their own unrighteousness. 
Maybe that's at the heart of the recent arrests and imprisonment of pastors who refuse to close their churches. Leaders feeling condemned by those who are actually determined to care about vulnerable people, wanting to silence that condemning voice. And on beliefs advice here, well, he hears the drum beats, the clatter of, of bows and arrows. He sees the righteous trying to live out peaceful and quiet lives, and he sees only one possible outcome. Big surprise. The verdict of the flight council is to flee. Make like a bird and find the safest, most protected place you can and just stay there. Be safe. You've got no chance of getting through this in one piece. This is the council of unbelief. And if you allow it to have a voice in your war council, you're always going to make the wrong decisions. Because again, unbelief can't see beyond the surface of things. It's reactive, it's self-protective, and it always fails because it fails to view circumstances through the eyes of faith. And faith not as a kind of sunny optimism, but a posture that sees to the heart and root of the way things really are. From a purely human, flight-based reading of the situation, Gideon and his 300 little men should not have been able to rout the Midianites. Those are uneven odds. It was literally 300 against 135,000. And yet they emerged triumphant. Why? because the Lord fought for them. The church right now doesn't seem to be the kind of institution that will end up victorious. Constantly slandered and misrepresented, not exactly influential or powerful, well-funded, and yet from the beginning, when it was literally just a bunch of scared disciples hiding in a room, the odds were never in its favor. And yet it remains to this day. Here we are. <laughs> and it continues to multiply. One day we'll reign with Christ in a new heavens and a new earth. But to see this requires faith. And on that note, let's turn from the bleakness and stuffiness of unbelief to the restoring breeze of faith. David tips his hand here, actually, right at the beginning of the psalm, verse one. In the Lord I take refuge. He's incredulous, almost uncomprehending at the response of unbelief in the face of reality. But what is David's reality? What is reality? Well, David responds in verses four to seven with three pillars of reality. Pillars that if you get them, will be a solid refuge and will mean you don't, we don't have to run and hide even when things look really bad. So let's look at these three pillars so that David's resolve can become ours, God's grace. First of all, 4A, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. First pillar, the Lord reigns. David is saying here, you can't honestly try to talk to me about foundations and not bring up the church's one foundation. That's how you're going to make your argument? 
The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Whatever foundations you're scared of being removed, it can't be that one. When the world was nothing but darkness and water, the Lord's throne was there. And for an infinity of time before that, and for an infinity of time to come. The Lord's throne is the spine of the universe. It's the bedrock under all the sand and silt. It's the wire frame giving structure to the clay. From his throne, the Lord is the one who sustains everything, even the wicked, and determines whether their plans will succeed or fail. Where is his throne? Well, it says here the Lord's throne is in heaven, beyond the reach of arrows or legislation or restrictions or jurisdiction. From that place, the Lord does as he pleases, and no one can say to him, what have you done now? God, give an account of yourself. David, in response to his opponent saying the foundations are going to be leveled, is to point upwards and ask, is God still in heaven? Crickets. So the foundations aren't really destroyed then. It's not like in Greek mythology where you have various gods and mortals rising up to hopefully overthrow the gods of Olympus. And some of them get pretty close. That will never happen to the Lord. And we need this perspective today. The reality of the immovability of the Lord has to encircle all our decisions. It will determine whether we make decisions based on fear or based on faith. David's detractor is convinced that the removal of the righteous will destroy righteousness. There will be no more righteousness. But that isn't true. He isn't seeing things the way they are. Righteousness doesn't exist as a cultural relic from the past that we need to hang on to and fight for, though we do. It exists because the Lord who is righteous is now sitting on his throne in heaven. And it exists because his words will never pass away. So long as those remain, so will the foundations of righteousness remain. Second pillar, the Lord sees verses 4b and 5. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of Man, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. So yes, God is on his throne. We need that perspective. We also need to hear what comes next, and that is that his eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord, though he is high and lifted up, is not distant or removed from the affairs of his creation, impassively watching as the wicked do whatever they want as the righteous just helpful, helplessly struggle along. No, it says here in verse four that he tests. He evaluates the hearts and the motives of the children of men. No matter how devious or shrewd or protected or powerful we think we are, God sees right through us. He is no respecter of persons. The Pharisees are constantly vexed by this in Jesus. All they want to do is be able to maintain the facade of their righteousness. All they want to do is hold on to their influence, 
and to live happy, elevated lives. But Jesus won't let them. He names their hypocrisy, their empty religious ornaments, their fundamental lack of love for people. He calls them vipers and whitewashed tombs and blind guides. That's why they want him gone. How does God follow up his evaluation? Well, two ways. It says here in verse 5 that the Lord tests the righteous. He refines. That's another way of translating that word. Refines and disciplines the righteous. He prunes the fruitful branches so they'll bear more fruit. You want to know what God's doing in the midst of upheaval? He's refining his people. And that process doesn't happen any other way. Just like you don't have pure gold unless you put it into a hot fire and burn away the impurities. God isn't watching helplessly as the righteous endure injustice while James molders in prison. He's not moldering. He's not that kind of guy. Now, God is using the injustice to increase his people's love for him, to loosen our hold on the world. There is always a good end to God's affliction. And the wicked? Well, there's really no way to sugarcoat this. It says right there in verse 5, the Lord hates the wicked. Literally, turns his face away from the wicked. He must hate the wicked because, again, the Lord himself is righteous. Habakkuk 1.3, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. And you are in one of two places this evening. There are no other categories. You are a beloved child of God, being trained through affliction. Or you are an object of God's hatred. With whatever current affliction you are enduring, a foretaste of a far greater affliction to come. And I don't say that with any glee. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. We're going to get to that. That is reality. In the midst of injustice, Christian unbelief will try to tell you that wickedness can do whatever it wants, that people with power and control and money can act in secret and with impunity, but they can't, and no one can. None of us can. The Lord sees, the Lord will judge, which is our third pillar of reality. The Lord is the judge of all the earth, and the wickedness is against everything that he is. To allow or to ignore evil would be to render God unrighteous. And then the foundations would be destroyed. Then we'd really be in trouble. To long for justice doesn't mean you're vindictive or vengeful. It means you're made in the image of God. (laughs) It is a an appropriate response to want to see injustice punished and righteousness rewarded. It's built into the fabric of the world. Now, I want to take a bit of a detour because we 
keep using this word righteousness. We've talked a lot about righteousness, and that could be a scary word. It's a scary word for a lot of people. Al talked about this last week. How do you know if you're one of the righteous? I mean, if you're anything like me, you probably don't feel very righteous most of the time. Let alone righteous enough to endure the scrutiny of an omniscient God. We were watching an interview with, uh, with Jordan Peterson a few nights ago. It was a great interview. But man, I don't think I've ever seen someone so honestly crushed under the prospect of righteousness. Peterson as much as admits he can't even live up to the standards of his own books. He's just broken at the thought of it. Pray for him. He's just responding honestly to the righteousness of God and the righteousness of Christ. Luther too, before God opened his eyes. Same thing, couldn't sleep. How are we gonna achieve the righteousness that God requires? Are we gonna get out our abacus and try to count up how many people we think we're better than? How about if we grandstand on Facebook and Instagram? Maybe if enough other people think we're righteous, that will mean we're righteous. All of those attempts are bound to fail. The righteousness of God is a titanium hammer that will disintegrate everything it tests. So what? Are we all just bound to inherit the fire and the sulfur the scorching wind, because that's what it looks like. Well, thank God, no. The gift of faith means we can acknowledge that righteousness can never be achieved. It can only be received. It follows in the footsteps of Abraham, who simply believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So we believe in God and the one he has sent, and we are declared righteous. We give Jesus the rags of our hypocrisy and our perversity and our selfishness and our unbelief. And in response, he gives us his sterling righteousness. And we are counted righteous. And our hearts are transformed from being lovers of wickedness. We're not any different from anyone else. We're not. It's the spirit that transforms our hearts, being lovers of wickedness into lovers of righteousness. But only then will you love it, and live it, and walk in it. Until then, it's just an intolerable weight, prospect of righteousness. For the righteous, our reward will be to behold, it says here, to gaze upon the Lord in his temple. Our reward will be to someday see the foundation of all things, the end for which we've been made. That was David's greatest desire. You know that? It's a sight that will, in a moment, make amends for any and all suffering we've had to endure in this life, however bad, is it, however bad it is. All injustice all violence, all hardship. It's a sight that our brother Harold is now enjoying with perfect mental acuity. 
That is the portion of the righteous. As to the wicked, those who resent and try to avoid the righteous demands of a righteous God, verse six, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind will be the portion of their cup. You might know this description as hell. It's a real place. It's a horrifying place. It's a place that those who refuse to repent, to bow the knee to the Christ that God has set on his throne must someday endure. Knowing this, knowing that no account will not be settled, that no scale will not be balanced, that all recompense will be measured out perfectly, why not turn and receive God's gift of righteousness in Christ? As for application, I, I want to make one point, just one. If, as this passage says, he is, the Lord is on his throne, well, the most reasonable thing Christians can do in the face of harm or danger is not to flee, but to fight, to have faith. I want to be really practical here. There is, not surprisingly, in some ways, considering the craziness of the times we're in, a resolve among some Christians to get away from it all, away from the bureaucracy and the rules and the regulations. I get it. There's another kind of resolve that would abandon the public sphere and retreat, as one author recently put it, into the quietism of family life or the fortress of one's own home and vocation, eyes down, forward. The thinking goes that as long as we can all afford to hole up and stay safe, we'll be fine and faithful. Now, it's not categorically wrong to want to move away from the city. Of course not. There may be good strategic reasons for doing so. Nor is it wrong to long for peace and safety and security. That's not a wrong desire. What's wrong is to abandon our responsibilities in order to get those things. It would have been wrong for David to flee like a bird to his mountain. It would have been an abdication of his duty as king. Historically, Christians are the ones who stick around after everyone else takes off. <laughs> David Robinson, writing for the Ezra Institute, wrote a great article last month on this exact topic. He writes, the plague of Cyprian spread across the Roman Empire and lasted two decades. According to Cyprian's description, the symptoms included diarrhea, vomiting, infectious sores in the mouth and eyes, the gangrene of the limbs. The disease was often fatal, and many who survived were left crippled, deaf, or blind. While most abandoned the sick and fled Carthage, Cyprian, who was a bishop at that time, exhorted Christians to stay and care for victims of the plague, whether fellow Christians or pagans. Dionysius, bishop of Alexandria in Egypt, provides another contemporary account of the plague. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty 
never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors, cheerfully accepting their pains. Who's left when all the people who can leave? Who do you have left? You have the poor and the sick and the dependent. You have those who don't have the means or opportunity to extricate themselves from the situation. Who cares for those people? Historically, the Christians. Always the Christians. And my point here is not to condemn anyone, but to remind us all, myself included, that if the Lord is our refuge, let floods and fires and pandemics and tyranny rage around us. Let them come. Let death come. He who tries to find his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. I was thinking about this. Maybe part of the reason we try to run away is that we think that maybe God doesn't actually have our best interests at heart. Like Jonah, right? That maybe his discipline, his testing will be the end of us. We think, if I continue down this path of faithfulness, it's not going to work out for me. My coworkers will hate me. My family and friends will reject me. My career is going to be derailed. God's going to take my hopes and plans and turn them into dust, and all my worst nightmares will be realized. That's the voice of unbelief. But that's what we think. God is not, in fact, a good father. And we start to tell ourselves Maybe we can manufacture a better, safer, more compelling path than what God has for us. So we're going to take things into our own hands. But listen, if we think that, we're mistaken. Look, God's end for the Israelites was not endless desert and conflict. That was not his end for them. It was a means to their learning to trust him. But his end for them was to be eventually peace and flourishing. The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. A land with brooks and streams and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills. A land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey. A land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. A land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. That doesn't sound like a measured, stingy reward or end. It's not possible for us to come up with a better good than God. The Israelites tried that. They tried to bring the promised land into the desert. Give us quail, give us soups and stews, give us rest, give us safety and comfort. But God had a better end in view, an end that meant they would be able ultimately to see God, that was the, the attempt, the hope, not just the land as their true rest. And their biggest mistake was to doubt God's end in his providence for them. 
Jesus was a man of sorrows. We sing about that. We will reign with him if we follow in the footsteps of his sorrows. Jesus didn't flee when he saw Jerusalem in the distance. It says he set his face like a flint. And to constantly be on the lookout for where the next arrow is coming so we can hightail it to the bunker is not the place of faithfulness. The solution in these days and the days to come is not to carve out our own refuge, but to start trusting the one who is a refuge. You don't need to know everything. You don't need to change everything. You don't need to be everywhere at one time. You just need to find a refuge that can do all of those things. (laughs) And the Lord is such a refuge for his people. My closing thought is to those here who are watching whose refuge isn't the Lord. Maybe you think you're presently pretty safe and secure. Or maybe you don't feel secure at all. These are unsettling times. And I pray that God would grant that you leave today confessing Christ as the sure and steady anchor. And that you take the Lord as your refuge. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that you know our frame. You know we are dust. We make mistakes and misjudgments. We commit outright rebellion and faithlessness to you. And yet we are amazed at your mercy, Lord, and and we pray that you would help us to to remember and to take to heart in a a very profound and on-the-ground way that you are a refuge and that your throne is in heaven, and that you see and that you will judge, and that these would not just be theories we can roll off our tongue, but that they would mobilize us for faithfulness in the present day and age. Lord, we are not a strong people, but we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so, Lord, let us love boldly and live well and rejoice in the good gifts we receive, and in the greatest gift we received through Christ, so that even if and when everything is taken away, we'd still be happy people. You will be our inheritance for the life to come. We pray these things in your name. Amen.